Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm excited tonight because tonight I've got a real story of epic and true heroism, of putting your life on the line to save others no matter the cost. And it's a story about the tragic lives many real heroes lead. Men who are brave in battle don't always end up swanning into riches and happiness. For many, the strains of battle leads to alcoholism, trauma, and inner pain. As E.B. Sledge notes, you stare out the window for hours thinking of anything and thinking of nothing. Sometimes you can't sleep. You drink heavily. You remember the absolute beauty and shy smile from a checkout girl at the grocery store you only saw once in your life. Her thin, upturned lips, her preternaturally straight teeth, her darting hazel eyes, the bangs falling in her face, the safety and security of a small-town American grocery store. Then other times there is your friend's smashed-in face, as if a giant had cleanly pushed his thumb neatly between your best friend's forehead. Tommy suddenly looks like he has a third bloody eye in between his other two. You remember the screams, the terror, terror so bad, it literally weighs down your lungs, makes your breath come in small, jagged gulps. <gasps> and sometimes... With the help of alcohol, you sit and remember the pain while your wife and your mother cry because they don't know who this man is that came back from the war. That's the kind of story I'm telling you about tonight. Epic tragedy, heroic downfall, a tale of a forgotten war, the war in New Guinea, where Australian and American troops faced down the best Japan could offer as they defended a key area. The Japanese soldiers shared the martial spirit of the samurai in every way they could. A thousand years of distilled military spirit running headlong into the overwhelming might of American and Australian industrial strength. But before we can do that, I've got to thank Jordan from Baton Rouge and Will from Cincinnati for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the Make a Donation button. But now, a detailed examination of true heroism. They said it didn't exist, but I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm telling you tonight it damn well does exist. Our story starts just a few months after the decisive Australian and American victory over the Japanese at the Battle of Kokoda, which I covered in episode 16, Australia Turns the Tide. This is a sort of sequel to that show. In the months following the Kokoda battle, the coastal Solomon Sea towns of Ghana and Buna fell to the Allies, and on January 2nd, 1943, Sananda which no one on earth can say five times fast, and which is located between the two larger villages, fell to the Australians. So all of this heavy combat between the Australian, Americans, and Japanese is taking place on the northern coast of modern-day Papua New Guinea, which is on the southeastern end of the island. And if that sounds confusing, there are maps up on the website. For months, the Japanese had been in retreat. Their situation was desperate. Now that Buna and Ghana had fallen, their essential bases at Salomeo and Lai, 24 miles away from the Allied front, were seriously threatened. And if those bases fell, there would be no supplies for the tens of thousands of Japanese based in southern New Guinea. Something had to be done. Now, the Japanese weren't stupid. They scanned their maps for key strong points to both block the Allied advance while also protecting their key military bases. Anyone could see that there was only one appropriate place to stop the Allies. It was called Wow, 
and it might have been insignificant, except in a land of untamed jungle and mountain passes with hardly any roads whatsoever, it had a key airstrip. With that airstrip, Wow could serve as a key point of military buildup and superiority for whoever held it. The airstrip would make the difference between men getting the medical supplies and treatment they needed, evacuated by air to the gleaming, modern, First World Hospital at Port Moresby, or the wounded men's fevered minds fading to black while they gaped and clawed at the dirt in a makeshift, undersupplied, open-air tent misnamed a first aid station because there was no medical supplies to give them. The airstrip was everything. The Japanese sent 3,000 men to take it. But the Allies weren't stupid either. They sent a small Australian garrison called the Kanga Force, which comprised two independent companies, the 17th Brigade and a few other elements. The Australian garrison had engaged their Japanese counterparts at the Axis-held village of Mubo in a running game of skirmishing death pranks. It was up to the Kanga Force to stop the Japanese advance and hold on to Wow by any means necessary. Now the conditions in the interior of New Guinea were horrendous. Your leather boots rotted off your feet, food was often scarce, and men's stomachs were a twisted pretzel of hunger pangs. However, there was a plenty of cigarettes and everyone chain smoked desperately trying to keep their minds off their screaming stomachs. The environment itself was also alien hostile. Wet dark forest reduced visibility to a few yards and behind every sound could be death. There was little entertainment. Men's minds invariably dreamed of home. Here's a letter one soldier wrote to his girl back home in the winter of 1942 from New Guinea. To a girl I love, dearest, you will never know what you have meant to me since I've known you. I guess I've loved you since the first day I saw you ten years ago. Many times I've tried to drive you out of my thoughts knowing how hopeless it was. Just to know that one day you smiled on me gives me courage to face most anything. You probably don't even know I'm alive right now. Many a night, lying in the mud and hell of this country, you've been my consolation and friend, my only courage and my only life. The only time I would ever think of saying this is now when my life means nothing. Forgive me for taking this unforgivable privilege, and please don't laugh at me. If I do come through this, everything will go back as it was. Never would I dare to mention this. Only God will know. End quote. Good women are men's shining star in the bleak blackness of the universe. Their beauty is a testament to a design that can never be random. They are a glimmer of a preter-rational hope. I've never told anyone this, but one time when I was a graduate student, I had to work a job I despised for a long time. And before I went there, I would pull into a neighborhood pool and smoke cigarettes behind my wife's back. And while I was smoking there was a bulletin board up on a billboard with events for the pool. And on that bulletin board was a picture of a smiling t-shirt clad co-ed. She was so happy. You could tell it was genuine. She was beautiful. And I realized that she was part of my culture, a priceless treasure. Her smiling visage was a shining light in darkness. And I've often thought of that, thought of her beaming face when times are hard and I think of my daughter's pure joy-filled smile, her ivory teeth, her red-brown eyes hovering two inches from mine, smiling while I read her green eggs and ham. The women in my life are shining stars, and if you don't have one, they are out there. Even if your wife drives you crazy, remember Gone with the Wind, a daughter is worth ten of the mother. Cherish your children, cherish your family, be thankful for the beauty we often take so much for granted. And remember Sam's song when he faced Shelob in The Return of the King. 
Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell, I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. And one of the men rotting in the jungle of New Guinea, staring up at the stars gliding through the swaying branches of a fetid jungle in early 1943, alternatively bored out of his mind or scared senseless, was Leslie Bull Allen. He was born on November 9, 1916 in Victoria, the son of a day laborer. He and his sister faced a horrible family life, his father often beating his mother. Substance abuse was common. When he was very young, Bull and his sister were abandoned by their parents and raised in an orphanage. No father to bear the brunt of the world's cold indifference. No mother to lay next to them and whisper prayers in their ears when they were scared at night. A cold 1920s orphanage without love, without the comforts of a home, was where Bull's roulette wheel landed his ball of life. At age 12, he was already working full-time, while at the same age, most of you are wasting thousands of dollars ignoring your teachers and dreaming of intercourse. Bull was holding down a full-time job working as a farm laborer, manhandling sheep as they were sheared or pinning them against iron fence posts when medicine was laboriously pumped into their unyielding mouths one at a time. His young back ached, his tender hands thickened with calluses, such were his opportunities when he was a young man. And how many of you listening to this have pissed away your time in school and been rude to those who cared about you? Here's how one historian describes Allen's early military service. Quote, In September 1940, Allen embarked for the Middle East with reinforcements for the war against Germany and Italy. There he served as a stretcher bearer. He was 5 feet and 11 inches tall with green eyes, black hair. He was physically imposing and strong. A keen sportsman with a wicked sense of humor. He was popular with everyone except his officers because of his disdain for authority. He acquired his nickname Bull for charging through the opposition while playing Australian rules football with the battalion. Allen proved dependable during the Libyan campaign in January and February 1941, but was admitted to hospital with anxiety neurosis in early April. Rejoining the battalion before the Syrian campaign, he came to notice on July 10th near Calda when, under heavy shell fire, he attended to casualties all night and next morning. Although fatigued, walked six miles to get transport for the wounded men when no one else would. His battalion left the Middle East in March 1942 and served in Sri Lanka before returning to Australia in August for a few months' training before they all sailed to Papua New Guinea in October 1942. Allen contracted malaria that winter, but was fit for the defense of Wau, New Guinea, in January 1943. And at the village of Wau, 1943, Allen came face-to-face with the cultural heritage of the samurai. Now, the Japanese advanced on broken-down and disused native trails, snaking along and cutting their way through the overgrown bush. Australian reconnaissance located the Japanese advanced units, and the Australians decided to send a battalion east of Wau to hinder the Japanese approach. The two sides met one another in the dense jungle on January 28th, and it was a day of bloodshed. The Japanese repeatedly attacked the Australians, running headlong into their wading fields of fire and getting mowed down but gaining a little ground with each attack. And the Japanese were experts at jungle warfare. They inched ever closer to the Australian lines until the Aussies were forced to fix bayonet and fight the Japanese hand-to-hand. 
The Japanese came out of the jungle seemingly from nowhere. In a moment, the enemy soldier is upon you. Hatred for the decadent West in his black eyes. Swords, rifle butts, bayonets, shovels. These were the tools of death used on that day. The combatants suddenly transported out of the 20th century into pre-history, clubbing one another's brains out, screaming in unknown primordial tongues. And the jungle was so dense you didn't see your comrades die. You simply heard them. A few yards away, you heard the battle rage. Your heart in your throat, your eyes wide, scanning every leaf for some sort of movement. Is your side winning or losing? Did your friend, the guy you had marched over the dark, mountainous jungle tracks with for the past five months, just die? Or did he take out the Japanese infiltrator? Would the screaming samurai be in your lap next? What was that sound in the bush? A possum moves, and you unload your rifle clip into the trees around you while screaming at the top of your lungs. That's the kind of man-on-man warfare that took place in the jungle surrounding Wow on January 28th. Soon the Japanese simply outflank the Australian outpost and press on towards the village of Wow itself. The woods were filled with thousands of them. In a few minutes, several of the Australian companies were pinned down, often semi-surrounded east of Wow, while the main Japanese column pressed on towards the town where there were few men left to defend it. On the night of January 28th, the Japanese were just two miles away from the city of Wau and the vital airstrip. The next day, the Axis soldiers began firing on the Allied defenders in the town itself. Fighting centered on the invaluable 1,000-yard-long airstrip. The airstrip was defended by two companies of Bull's Battalion. Throughout the day, the Allies made over 80 landings, disgorging troops at each touchdown, and the soldiers went into immediate combat, literally from the time their plane's wheels touched the ground. Some soldiers in Bull's company gave each other oh-shit looks when they ran their fingers through the smoking bullet holes in their transport plane's hull. Dark crimson blood puddles muddied the soldiers' boots in human gore on the floor of the transports. One private remembered the plane ride to Wow this way quote our dc3 was piloted by a gum chewing crew cut yank in a sweatshirt who looked to be about 14 the plane had been stripped of seats and the troops sat on the plane's floor leaning against sides of boxes of grenades mortar bombs packs and supplies of all kinds we emerged from the clouds over the owen stanley's mountain range into sunlight and duly landed at the wow airport end quote Many of the Australians were wounded in the fighting in the first few minutes after touchdown and were literally reloaded in the same crumbling planes they had rode in on. An Australian trooper remembered an ambush his platoon set up for the attacking Japanese like this, quote, We had been settled into our fortified positions when someone whispered down the line, The Japs are coming. When the Japs started to come out of the scrub, they ran into 29 automatic weapons going full bore. It was like that movie Predator, just devastation everywhere. You could literally see the Japanese falling over. It was like an invisible wall stopped their advance. It took about an hour before the Japs decided they weren't going to conquer anything except their lifespans, and at this position, they broke off the attack." End quote. Throughout the night, the Allies shifted their focus to meet the coming Japanese tidal wave. Men took their lives in their hands when they made their way from one position to another in the jungle at night. One soldier named Kelly remembered what it was like. Quote, it was now pitch black and heavy rain had set in. Lieutenant McBride led the group 
with the aid of a fountain pen torch, if you can believe it, each man holding on to the clothes of the man in front of him, down the track on the crest of a steep razorback ridge, visibility was nothing. We reached the beginning of the river flats via a tree trunk bridge, a real case of one slip and you're gone, as the river was a raging torrent. We regrouped briefly and were told, no noise, no talking. We were about two miles from Wall on Crystal Creek Road, and we were met by a brigade HQ officer, Wally Smith. Just then, still dark and raining heavily, we were challenged by strange, high-pitched, angry-sounding noises from both sides of the road and very close. Still, no one spoke. And as we began to move on slowly, I asked the Angel officer in a whisper if he thought the voices belonged to natives. He replied very definitively, No. No. Soon after, we reached the airstrip without incident. End quote. A modern historian picks up the story. Quote, Before dawn on January 30th, the Japanese made their main attack, and they came on for the entire morning. Hours of maniac samurai charges on the shell-shocked Australians. Aircraft continued to land on the airfield, and these delivered two field guns, which were in action by 11.30 a.m. Finally, at about noon, the Japanese broke off, and the Australians could rest a minute. That's when the unbelievable order came to the battle-ravaged men. Attack! The Allied soldiers left their hastily dug trench works and waded into the jungle after the Japanese. But the Axis soldiers were in no condition to stem the Allied charge, and hundreds of Axis troops were killed in the counterattack. By February 1st, there were more than 3,100 Australians actively defending Wow, significantly outnumbering the battle-depleted Japanese. The Allies had continuously funneled men and materiel literally into the front line for days while the Japanese tried to break through and take the airfield. Now, the mopping up exercises began deep in the suffocating jungle. The Japanese drew the Australians, where every bend in the track was an ambush, and man fought in small bands like their forefathers had done 10,000 years before. End quote. The Japanese launched a strong air attack against Wow on February 6th, which was opposed by Allied air forces and resulted in huge losses for the Axis air fleet. Besides, the Japanese air attack was way too late. Their forces on the ground were already in retreat, and the Australians were nipping at their heels the whole way. Sergeant H.A. Bell was there. He provides this description of the mopping up action, quote, My platoon was detailed to destroy a Japanese strongpoint, Contact came soon after when my point scout was killed by a single shot. Not knowing where it came from, I grabbed a Bryn gun from Private Webb and sprayed the general area. Everything became dead quiet. Private Little took over as point scout and returned after going 800 yards claiming he could hear voices and digging sounds. I moved forward with a section and the sound seemed to come from our right. I decided to withdraw, but the voices were becoming louder and louder, so we worked our way around to see what the Japs were up to. This time we were spot on, and we could see at least 100 Japs digging in a headquarters site. I decided not to attack, but sent a runner back to headquarters with the Japanese coordinates, so the strong point could be shelled and mortared." End quote. All along the broken-down trails in the valley, the Australians were working out the Axis units. Private Leslie Allen was one of them. Small groups of Australians worked around the clock to crowbar 
Japanese strong points. That's when Allen's platoon came face to face with a well dug in Japanese machine gun nest. The order came down for Allen's platoon to attack the position. The 33 men were working their way towards the position, their bellies pressed against the damp jungle floor, desperately trying not to make any noise, their heavy breathing sounding like fire alarms in their straining ears when suddenly. The Japanese machine gun opened up on the creeping Australians. The men dove for cover, but the bullets were everywhere, spewing death at 2,000 rounds a minute. Forest detritus stormed all around the men, blanketing them in a snow of jungle awful. Then, just as suddenly as it had begun, the machine gun fell silent, the Japanese gunner straining to see any movement in the opaque overgrowth. Two of Bull's comrades had died in the initial barrage. Three more were wounded. Their screams were a curse on man. Now there was no thick silence in the air, just pain racked screaming from the wounded. That's when one man burst from out of the bush, a stomach-crawling tiger bursting out of a savanna towards a wounded gazelle. It was Bull. The tiger man dashed towards the first wounded man, the machine gun, ventilating the trees all around him. Still, Bull came on, heedless of death. You could hear the wump-wump of bullets striking trees and soil, sending globs of black dirt and tree splinters clouding around the moving cat-like man, clawing his way to the wounded. Bull pushed the first wounded man named Private Kelly over a small bank and then threw the man over his shoulder the way angry fathers absent-mindedly pick up their toddlers like it was nothing. He then ran back 200 yards carrying the man, machine gun bullets trailing after him the whole way, and deposited Private Kelly in safety at company headquarters. As he stopped to catch his breath, Bull sloughed off his haversack and lay down next to it. That's when he saw it. A bullet hole. A machine gun round had passed straight through his haversack. Bull checked himself for wounds. The round had missed him. He was fine. Then on the afternoon of February 8th, at about 3 p.m., Bull's platoon was ambushed. Surrounded by snipers, the men gaped wide-eyed at one another as snipers slowly began to take them out one by one. One private was stuttering, We gotta do something! They got us pinned up! When his head suddenly exploded apart in thick, chunky slabs, the way a pumpkin explodes apart when drunken teenagers shatter it on pavement. Two more men yelled out in pain as sniper bullets pierced their too soft skin. You could hear sniper rounds zinging and pinging all around you. A few seconds later, the company sergeant major was hunched over and working his way to the front when he just stopped and lobbed over. The way playing kindergartners suddenly stop and just rest on their side in the middle of a playground. His stomach had stopped a bullet. People were losing it. That's when Private Allen transformed into a human cheetah. He deftly bounded towards the wounded men, sniper rounds lasering all around him. But the snipers were too slow, and Allen ran the gauntlet on three separate trips, recovering all the wounded men, carrying two of them back on his shoulder more than 30 yards. And when the men finally made it to safety, Allen didn't leave them, but continued to make sure they received first aid, dressing their wounds himself for these actions. Bull was awarded the Australian Military Medal and was promoted to corporal. He had single-handedly saved four men's lives. He he had single-handedly enriched four families' lives, and this is but a foreshadowing, the rising action before the climax of Bull's heroism. One Australian eyewitness provides an excellent summary of the battle for Wow in his diary from the period, quote, Friday, cut off by Japanese who have advanced to Crystal Creek. Saturday, 
still trying to get through Sunday, arrived at Blake's after being picked up by natives, given a good feed in bed. God, we needed it. Monday, start off for Balaam's again, arrive 5 p.m., Japanese still outside, wow, planes drop food. Tuesday, 2nd February, settled down. Thursday, moved to the summit, three hours uphill. Saturday, dog fights over, wow, four planes brought down. Sunday, moved from summit back to old positions. Japanese still outside Wow, but being pushed back to Crystal Creek. Tuesday, Japanese retreating from Wow towards Wendumi. Village burnt down at 4 p.m. by Japanese. 9 p.m. news that the boys had broken through Crystal Creek and on their way to the end Japanese positions. Wednesday, Japanese still on the run. Our boys mopping up at Wandami. Sunday, 14th, Wow cleared of Japanese a few stragglers. That's all. End quote. By February 9th, the Wow Valley was clear of Axis forces. The Japanese had lost 1,200 killed in the failed operation. The Australians had lost about 300 men. It was a total Allied victory, but this is just the appetizer of Bull's story. The main course is coming up next. Now, in the coming months, the Allies slowly worked the Japanese back through southeastern New Guinea. Using their newly won air superiority, the mostly American aircraft blasted the Axis soldiers out of their strongholds in a relentless bombing campaign. One historian provides the details, quote, Much of the enemy activity was neutralized not only by the patrols, but by an intensive program of air bombardment. Many points held by the enemy parties one day would be found empty on the next after the planes had gone over. It was relentless bombing that drove the Japanese out of the jungle, end quote. For months, the men patrolled the jungle and recuperated from the heavy fighting at Wow until the word came back in June 1943 that there was a major concentration of Axis forces at a place called Mount Tambu. It was here that Bull would once again show the world the inestimable value of an orphan farm laborer. Mount Tambu was a Japanese strong point where the Axis soldiers had regrouped after being driven out of Wow. It was a key point in the defense of a Japanese-held village called Mobu. The Allies were determined to root out the Japanese from Mobu and drive them back into the sea itself. And by this point in the conflict, there were a large number of American infantry units on the ground who were supporting the main Australian thrust towards the retreating Japanese. On July 6th, the battle for Mobu started with the by now predictable American aerial bombardment. The Allied bombers dropped over 100 tons of ordnance on the Japanese-held Observation Hill. The men who witnessed the bombing couldn't believe anyone could survive it, and yet many Japanese did. They stumbled out of their bunkers to meet the Australians who were advancing on their position, and Bull was one of them. On July 7th, heavy battle broke out again when an Australian patrol was ambushed as they probed a walking trail called Viles Track. A company of Australians launched an attack on the deeply entrenched Japanese, but this time the Axis units were ready for them. They worked automatic fire into the onrushing Aussies, many of whom died right there on a dirt path in the middle of nowhere. The attack was called off. The men returned to their own rifle pits and dugouts, whereupon they found themselves on the receiving end of an attack by the Japanese. This time it was the Australians who had the advantage. Wave upon wave of screaming Axis units committed suicide by Australian. You could hear them coming, but the jungle was so thick you could barely see them until they were right on top of you. Men just sprayed the jungle with automatic fire wherever they heard movement. The Japanese attacks continued all day and night. There was very little sleep. 
for Bull and his comrades on that day. And during the early morning hours, the Japanese withdrew from their fortified position. Now the Allies' flank was secure. And you should keep in mind that this is a war of small groups of a dozen or two dozen men facing each other. You were never really personally safe, even if your side was objectively winning the battle. The ground of your unique position could still be hopeless. Many of the eyewitnesses recount how the Japanese were always lurking around the Australian positions. Their accounts remind me of the mandatory scenes from Vietnam films where a platoon is patrolling jungle tracks, desperately scanning the bush for any sign of the enemy. Often nothing would happen in the films and in real life, but sometimes a sniper might take off your best friend's head and then dissipate back into the impenetrable mass of wild jungle bush. Here's how one Australian named Charlie Turnbull remembered the random death which constantly threatened the men in the jungle. Quote, Some of us were sent across a swift-flowing creek near Observation Hill. Now this creek was wide and the bottom was covered with slime-encrusted stones which made navigating across the water incredibly difficult. Worse than that, the sound of the creek drowned out all the other noises so you couldn't hear the enemy moving around you. It was the perfect place for an ambush. That's why we didn't hear the little Japanese aircraft which dropped a few bombs right on top of us. We were all concentrating on getting across the obstacle when the bomb started exploding shrapnel into our bodies. Four or five men were wounded right away. One man was killed. Bull Allen worked tirelessly to take care of the wounded. End quote. The next day, it started to rain heavily, and Bull's unit made a desperate attack uphill while facing an entrenched Japanese unit. It was useless. In the rain and muck and slime, the men couldn't even crawl up the hill. The attack was called off. The rain, however, was not called off. It saturated everything. Your food, your cigarettes, your feet, your webbing rotting off. Your whole body, clothing, hair, skin, everything was caked in mud and rain by July 12th. The Axis strongpoint of Mobu had fallen, and the Japanese retreated and regrouped on Mount Tambu to stop the advancing Americans and Australians once and for all. It was at this point that a key group of Americans from the 162nd Regiment took over the offensive against the Japanese. But before we move on in this story, I want to stress the terrible nature of the terrain in and around Mount Tambu that Bull and his allies were tasked to fight in. Here's how one eyewitness described it, quote, Mount Tambu is the highest point between Mobu and the key Japanese base of Salameu. Ridges converge here from all directions to form steep crags, all covered with thickest jungle. The crest can only be attacked by approaching up the ridges themselves, which means the Axis forces will know exactly where our forces will assault them from. These ridges are extremely narrow razorbacks with sheer drops on either side. Only about two or three men can walk side by side up the ridges. Much of the tropical area was covered in snaking roots, which made it impossible to dig defensive positions and were still the roots were just everywhere. As a track is worn, the mud becomes knee-deep and the roots catch men's feet, leaving them sprawling face downward, often in the middle of combat. From the wind rises the sour, unclean smell of the decaying vegetation. Clothing is wet through and rotting. The stench from the vegetation and our own unclean bodies is still sickening. Even today, thinking about it makes me sick. These were the conditions we fought in on Mount Tambu, end quote. 
On July 16th, the Allied troops attacked this last key Japanese stronghold, protecting their rear base at Salameu. For the next four days, the men made battle in these horrific conditions. It was a bloodbath for both sides, like nothing many of the men had ever seen. One eyewitness remembers the Japanese position this way, quote, our men attacked up a 70-degree slope into the Japanese semicircle of well-prepared and heavily defended defensive positions. This chain of weapon pits was located on a ledge 40 yards from about 50 feet below the peak of the mountain, which housed a fortress of 10 bunkers constructed with log-reinforced firing slits, some located above others and all interconnected by tunnels, and dug into the very heart of the stony mountain itself." End quote. About 130 men were tasked with assaulting this puzzle of rapid-firing death. The men worked in extremely small groups in order to minimize casualties and quietly strike Japanese bunkers without warning. Two Bryn gunners named Jim Reagan and Fred Allen squirmed their way through the rotting, jumbled muck to the very log walls of a Japanese bunker. Then, unheard, their mouths synchronizing the timing, they both lobbed multiple grenades through the firing slit. Suddenly, the inside of the bunker was a tumult of screams and scrambling bodies desperately trying to claw their way to safety, but they didn't make it. The grenades exploded, ventilating the Japanese with quills of fragmenting metal. The proud sun of Japan hadn't even gotten off one round from their machine guns. Fred and Jim saved countless lives with their stealth assault. And so the assault on Mount Tambu slipped and scrambled on. The men slid and crawled up the ridge. Allied artillery constantly raked over the Axis strong points. The artillerymen, working so close to the front line that they were often wounded by infantry of the enemy. David Dexter gives one example, quote, some of the Allied shelling was directed by Lieutenant Donald Schroeder of the American Artillery. On July 24th, four soldiers led Schroeder to high ground west of Tambu Bay, whence he could bring down fire on the enemy-held ridge. The patrol reached the base of the ridge where Schroeder was wounded by a patrol of about 10 Japanese. Moving to Schroeder's side, Private Macon placed himself between the wounded men and the enemy. Emptying his submachine gun into the Japanese, he forced their withdrawal, dressed Schroeder's wound, telephoned for a stretcher, and succeeded in withdrawing with the stretcher party in Quote, at Mount Tambu, nowhere was safe. But the Japanese weren't thriving either. One Japanese defender named Kobayashi wrote this in his diary on July 23rd. Quote, this is our 71st day on Mount Tambu, and there is no relief yet. We must entrust our lives to God. Every day there are bombings, and we feel so terribly lonely. We do not know when the day will come for us to join our dead comrades. Can the people at home imagine our suffering? Eight months without a single letter. There is no time to even dream of home anymore. Now I want you to stop right there. I've read a lot of war memoirs, and a constant theme from the soldiers is the longing for a home in peace. Friends, you don't know how precious a safe home really is. You men and women tearing apart America's streets are playing with fire. Peace and home are inestimably valuable. And if you won't listen to me, then listen to Sergeant Kobayashi. Peace, especially under conditions of modern war, is priceless. Anyway, the last Australian attack on Mount Tambu went in on July 24th. After an artillery and mortar bombardment, the company moved up the ridge into a storm of fire from Japanese pillboxes. One man was wounded in the attack, but the rest of his platoon surged forward. Three men led the way, 
an American historian remembers the final assault like this, quote, When the trio reached a semi-clearing 35 yards from the crest, they were ordered to withdraw. The men couldn't believe what they were hearing. With the prize of victory so close, and sensing it was now or never, an Australian corporal named Smith jumped up and stormed towards the summit, with two Americans running on either side of him the way blockers protect a running back in American football. After a few strides, Smith stopped to hurl a grenade, but was suddenly punctured by machine gun fire, along with all the men around him. One American was killed instantly, and Smith himself was perforated with bullets and shrapnel. The remaining American rolled along the ground as a single Japanese soldier left the protection of his bunker to repeatedly fire at the fish-like American wildly flopping on the ground. That's when another American named Tom turned around to face his attacker like Kurt Russell in the film Tombstone. Tom methodically pumped three rounds into the Japanese, who didn't even know what hit him. The Axis soldier's body hemorrhaged and involuntarily convulsed on the rotting jungle floor as Tom pressed forward with his attack, a one-man army. He leapt from one covered position to another quick as a beautiful woman can entice a man. Often, machine gun bursts would literally explode the soil right behind him, but Tom was always one step ahead. He circled upward through the jungle fringe and found himself on top of a deadly pillbox, dropping a couple of grenades into a small oval back entrance. He dived into a natural drainage ditch as the machine gun nest and crew were liquefied in a belch of smoke and flame. He pulled himself from the ditch and stood at the crest, firing at anything that moved. Then he shouted down to the Americans and Australians 50 yards back who were still cowering behind cover. What now? Who do I kill now? The Allied soldiers blinked like first graders at an enraged male teacher. Who was this demigod speaking to them? Finally, a voice called out to Tom. Nobody, Tom. Just come on back down, buddy. Come on back down now, man. And Tom returned to his lines. Mount Tambu had fallen to the Allies, but the victory had come at a heavy price. The 59 men of D Company, for example had lost four men killed and 13 men wounded. Such was the heavy price paid for the free air you Australian men breathe. From Melbourne to Perth and Alice Springs to Darwin, your island is a special place. And who knows how many refugees may look to your island in the future. You have a duty to protect this little jewel, this second England. This royal throne of free men, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seed of peace, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it as the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a castle. Against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this Australia. Such was the way mankind's greatest poet described a land less secure than your own. What a great charge you Australians have. Please don't sell your birthright for a mess of pottage. I would have you play the part of Jacob rather than the part of Esau. One day countless free men and women will thank you for what you've done. I guarantee it. And if you're not sure what to do, remember what Leonidas said. Sparta has need of sons. Why shouldn't Australia need sons too? There were still a few Japanese strongpoints to clear out on top of Mount Tambu, and fresh American reinforcements were sent in to help clear the way. 
The Allied attack started with the obligatory artillery and mortar barrage. Then the Americans moved from their start line towards the right flank of the Axis position. They got within 30 yards of the top of the ridge in the center of Japanese resistance when the entire ridge seemed to simply erupt. Imagine walking along a wooded path, everything silent, seemingly at peace, and then the woods all around you simply explode. There are flashes of light everywhere. The sound alone is disorienting, sending you nosediving into the earth for cover. All at once, tree branches are falling all around you, men screaming. That's what it was like for the Americans on top of Mount Tambu. The two platoons on the front line pressed onward, their ears ringing from the sound of gunfire and grenades 20 yards away, but eventually they could go no further. They were pinned down. Every now and then one would call out an excited childlike shriek, and you would hear the thud of flying metal colliding with men's wet innards. Attempts by a third platoon and by a platoon from the reserve company to outflake the enemy were unsuccessful. Casualties began to mount, and there was a web of flying steel in the air. Men were making love to the ground, desperately trying to pull the earth over them like a blanket when they saw something, a man with a flopping bush hat. He nimbly bounded from one covered position to another, the way Batman attacked Scarecrow's flunkies at the beginning of the film The Dark Knight. The way he moved was more than human, preternatural, otherworldly. His face was serious. The way South Korean students from good families focused during a GRE. Everything on the line, years of training and responsibility culminating in this one moment, this one place in time and space. Then, the panther-like figure dashed to the side of one of the wounded. It was Bull Allen, the stretcher-bearer. He came for the men when they called for him. Against all odds, he came. A second later, the wounded man is over Bull's shoulder, and now Bull is a plowing tank, bulldozing down the mountainside, his ninja-like feet dodging every root and mud pit attempting to hinder his progress. Bull deposits the wounded men at the first aid station at the bottom of the mountain more than 30 yards away. Then he went back, and he did it again 11 more times bullets everywhere. He was under no obligation to rescue the Americans because they weren't part of his assigned unit. But his own conscience spurred him to action. Twelve Americans lived because of him. Twelve families continued because of him. Countless grandchildren are alive and working today in America. Some of them will hear this story. Bull Allen was as quick as the sound of my voice is transmuted into electrical signals by your ears. Up and down the hill, under constant fire, Bull went. He did his duty. He could have skirked it. It would have been easy to hide himself in the exploding jungle side, but he went beyond the call of duty, and now untold numbers of people are alive today in both Australia and the United States because of his actions. And what about you, listener? Your life is a pebble in a still pond. Your actions affect everyone around you. You're not a self-contained individual, and you never were. You can make a difference in the lives of those you care about, or you can hide and do nothing. Be the change you want to see. Eventually... Of course, the Allies took the ridge and pressed on towards the main Japanese base, which you all know eventually was captured by the Allies. There were thousands of little conflicts I could describe, but most of the major ones repeated this same familiar pattern. There were artillery and aerial bombardments to soften an Axis strongpoint, and then a few platoons of infantry would move in and either be repulsed or capture the Axis position. If they were repulsed, the process simply repeated. By early September, the Japanese front line was crumbling and the Allies were assaulting their key bases at Salamea and Lai on the northern 
Japan-facing coast of New Guinea. The enemy decision to evacuate Salamea on September 6th was caused not only as a realization that Salamea was doomed, but by the urgent necessity to reinforce Lai, where there were only about 2,000 troops comprising mostly base units such as hospitals, engineers, fixed artillery, and anti-aircraft. There must have been more than the usual fog of war, panic, and confusion in lie as the exhausted units from Salamea battles arrived at the base. The first arrivals must barely have had time to come ashore before being sent to the battle front. As in the Salamea campaign, the Japanese commander again broke up the organization of his fighting units by sending companies of the same unit in different directions. The total number of Japanese in the lie area was about 11,000. Casualties inflicted by the two Australian divisions were at least 2,200. In return, the Japanese had inflicted 547 casualties on the Australians, including 115 killed, 501 wounded, and 73 missing. About 2,000 Japanese were killed in the final drive on Salamea. The battle for southern New Guinea was over. But the war for the Pacific was just beginning. But that's another podcast. After Bull's heroic actions in both February and July 1943, he slowly began to lose touch with reality. Something had snapped inside the man, pushed by the terrible strain of jungle warfare and combat fatigue. John Mormon and the Herald Sun newspaper provide an excellent summary of Bull's later years, so I'll let them finish the story. Quote, while Allen never showed fear in battle, it became clear after his return to Australia in September 1943 that he was badly affected by what he saw in the war. His behavior became erratic, and in February 1944, he struck an officer and was demoted. He was assessed as suffering from constitutional temperamental instability with anxiety symptoms as well as malaria and was medically discharged on September 10, 1944. Alan lived with an uncle while recovering, having temporarily lost the power of speech, cocooned in his own thoughts, oblivious to the world around him. At the Salvation Army Citadel, Malvern, Melbourne, on April 23, 1949, he married Jean Elizabeth Floyd, a former Army nurse. He then worked as a laborer and later as a theater orderly at Ballarat Base Hospital. On his small acreage, he raised pigs and broke horses. He was well known around town for his stature, his booming voice and humor, and he was also popular with tourists at Sovereign Hill, the recreated gold mining town, where he demonstrated how the horse-drawn mill used to crush quartz. How many tourists were in the presence of a hero and never knew it? For most Anzac days, he traveled to Melbourne and carried his unit's association banner in the march. Survived by his wife and their daughter and three sons, he died of diabetes and myocardial infraction on May 11, 1982 at Sovereign Hill and was cremated. End quote. When Bull closed his eyes on this world and made the great leap into the next, he was grandfather to 13 children and well over seven great-grandchildren. But more than that, over 15 Australian and American families complete with their dozens of grandchildren making a life for themselves across two continents owed their very existence to this one simple man. Hundreds of lives owe their very existence to a day laborer and pig farmer. I tell you all how much better 
would our countries and our towns and our civilization be if we could all have the integrity and bravery of a pig farmer and day laborer like Leslie Bull Allen? Oh, for a country of pig farmers, for a nation of day laborers, men who love their families and their comrades as themselves. But the West are nations of drug addicts and social media posters who long for likes and paint their hair all colors of the rainbow. But friends, turn your eyes away from your screen and look inside your heart, past your multicolored hair and your facial piercings, past your sardonic pun on Twitter, and you will see emptiness, nothingness, no achievement, nothing. Oh, you most educated men and women of the West... If only you could see the color of your spirit. If only you could post your inner beauty to Instagram. How many down votes would you receive? And until next time, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you all good times and good weather with good people. Bye. <laughs>